0: Well, I want to encourage you to turn your Bibles this morning to the uh, Acts of the Apostles and the second chapter. The Acts of the Apostles, uh, chapter 2. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 37 down through verse 42, and then we'll focus more particularly on the 38th verse. But to Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 37 down through verse 42. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God. Will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then, those who had received his word were baptized. In that day, they were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Now let us pray. Father, thank you this morning for the great privilege we've had already just to worship the most high, glorious, holy, unchangeable, powerful, sovereign God. We thank you that you... Are a mighty, glorious being who always accomplishes your purposes. I thank you for uh, each one that you've been pleased to bring here this morning, and I, I pray that our, our, all of our hearts would be awakened to the incomparable excellence of your being, to the glorious eternal salvation that is found exclusively in your pure and holy Son. In these moments, I, I would pray for the help of your Holy Spirit to convey your Holy Word in a way that is really reflective of its truth and its purpose and i I pray it would be a, a special preparation to um, the baptisms that we are looking forward to this morning so I just would pray for your help and, and guide our, our thinking and give us understanding into your word and might it all redound to your glory and we ask these things in Jesus name amen well I have a, a pattern of, uh, of preaching through books of the Bible or sections of the Bible for the most part. And that would have put us in Hebrews chapter 2 this morning. And uh, as I reflected on this particular day, where we have the joy of of several baptisms later on in the service, I I thought it might be helpful to have a a message that's exclusively dedicated to this theme. Sometimes I'll say that it's a message that's kind of a cross between a sermon and a Sunday school lesson. This is a little bit like that. But I thought it it was somewhat ironic that I have pastored several years in a Baptist church and never preached a sermon on baptism. I've taught a lot in Sunday school and other venues. But I I also thought it would be helpful to seek to clarify why we practice what we call believer's baptism, and by believer's baptism, I mean first there's a clear profession of faith, repentance, belief in Christ. That's followed uh, by full immersion in water based on the desire of the person who has received Christ as Savior. So the, the issue is not simply, well, this is the way that we do it, or it's according to tradition, but why do we operate in such a way? And I suppose one might um, might question, we have such a great appreciation for the Puritans and Reformed brothers who all practice infant baptism by and large. And one may wonder, well, how come we don't follow suit? And I, I know I'm going to sound here a little bit like a, kind of a simplistic, Calvinistic, shingle-pulling, show-me-a-verse Baptist preacher. I know that. Uh, and I'm willing to talk, anyone that has a further interest in that, I'm willing to talk further and kind of give you my own thinking on it. But I, I would say the, the main reason is this. I mean, people like me and of my ilk, We just don't see infant baptism in the Bible. We we don't see that anywhere in the Bible, so we we don't practice it. And again, I'd be happy to to chat with you about that, the the parallel between circumcision and baptism. We don't find compelling. Um, And I'm being just a little bit facetious here, but uh, I, I was baptized as an infant and it didn't work. And here's how I know that. Well, of course, I don't remember it. And I wasn't consulted. I mean, I didn't get my permission. It just happened. And I was hurt. I was sprinkled and so forth. And so it was a Lutheran church. And I don't know what the pastor said. And I don't know what he thought it was accomplishing. So I thought, well, I'll see what Luther has to say about it. And so question 251 from his catechism, he says, how do you prove that infants too are to be baptized? And one answer is because holy baptism, it's the only means whereby infants who too must be born again can ordinarily be regenerated and brought to faith. Now, my understanding of regeneration, it's a profound, powerful work of the Holy Spirit in the soul of someone who's dead in trespasses and sins, raised up to new life in Christ. And when I became of age... I was not regenerated. I mean, I wasn't interested in holiness or Bible reading or prayer or anything like that. So that's kind of the way that people like me think. We just don't see the practice of sprinkling infants in the Scriptures. However, if one were to ask, well, can you give me some example of believer's baptism? Well, the text that I just read, especially verse 38, I I think makes the point uh, fairly clearly. In fact, twice in the verses I read in your hearing, verse 38 Repent each of you and be baptized then again again verse forty one So then those who had received his word, that is, they they'd received the saving word, were baptized. First the saving word, then they were baptized. So this morning, and I hope this will be edifying to your soul and a helpful preparation to practicing several baptisms, I want to emphasize that in our understanding, New Testament baptism is believer's baptism. New Testament baptism is believer's baptism. We'll pursue that under three lines of thought this morning. First of all, the proper subjects of baptism are those who have believed. The proper subjects of baptism are those who have repented. So who is to be baptized? According to verse 38, those who have repented. Now what I would like to do under this first heading is offer three remarks about this kind of repentance that that precedes baptism. First of all, I would have you notice the precursor or preparation for this repentance is conviction of sin. It's it's repentance that is the result or the consequence of being convicted of one's own sin. Now, I I don't think in general it's hard to convince people that they are sinners. You probably found that to be the case. Most people will agree, well, I've lied or I've stolen something or, or done something like that. But they're not really troubled by it. They're not really bothered by that. Uh, They're quick to point out that others have done worse. But here we see the necessary foundation for true repentance. It's conviction of sin. It's being bothered by sin and troubled by sin. And we see in the present, uh, in the previous verse, the effect of Peter's sermon on those who heard it. It says they were pierced to the heart. And they said to the apostles, what shall we do? So we begin to observe here that the kind of repentance which is a prerequisite for baptism. It's no superficial thing. When they heard this, when, when they heard the word that Peter preached, um, their hearts were pierced. So, so the kind of repentance that precedes baptism, it's not the it's not produced in a vacuum, but it's the effect the direct it's the effect of truth on the soul. Um, And obviously, this requires cognition. It requires the ability to process biblical truth and the capacity of moral discrimination. Um, In terms of uh, this phrase, to be pierced, it means to be stabbed, the lexicon that I use, to be pierced emotionally, to be or to become moved or affected deeply or sharply, to be pierced, stabbed. Figuratively, it's used of the feeling of sharp pain in connection with anxiety or remorse. David G. Peterson, in his commentary on the Acts of the Apostles, says, they, "...they were cut to the heart." meaning that they were conscience-stricken or remorseful and said to Peter and the other apostles, what shall we do? So what shall we do reveals there's a deep level of guilt over their complicity in the crucifixion of the person of Christ. So they're really reeling from the import of verse 36. And one commentator said, convinced of their their guilt, they asked the apostles as brothers, what shall we do? Another commentator, Peter's hearers took his words as applying to them personally. Many of them had perhaps Tacitly agreed with the action of their leaders in putting Jesus to death. The thought of being brokenhearted, standing under conviction of sin. And Simon Kistemaker wrote, His sermon reminds them of their refusal to listen to Jesus and to accept Him as the Messiah. His accusation that they crucified and killed Jesus, is justified, and it pierces their conscience. And Matthew, Henry, a bit more expansive. They speak as men at a stand that did not know what to do. What will become of us who crucified him, we are all undone. They speak as men at a point that were resolved to do anything they should be directed to do immediately. They were not for taking time to consider, nor for adjourning the prosecution of their convictions to a more convenient season, but desire now to be told what they must do to escape the misery they were liable to. So there's kind of an at-my-wits-end moral urgency here. What must I do? So we notice here that the, the precursor to the kind of repentance that is found in our text, it's, it's a deep, heartfelt conviction of sin, a person who is truly bothered by their sin. Secondly, just a few thoughts about the nature of this kind of repentance that is necessary, a necessary preparation for baptism with the character of this repentance. The reason I say uh, necessary, I'm thinking about Peter's response to the question, what shall we do? Well, the only response he gives is to repent. This is what you must do. There's no other options. Uh, The verb repent here, it's in the imperative mood. It's the force of a command. So this is like an order from the moral governor of the universe. In the 17th chapter of the Acts of the Apostles, Paul conveys to the Athenians, <clears throat> excuse me, God is declaring to men that all everywhere should repent. So anyone who has not repented um, of their sin and turned to Christ, they're in a posture of disobedience to the Most High God. And, and the importance of repentance, uh, just a little bit of an aside here, but the importance of repentance as it relates to gospel salvation, is seen in the fact that you remember John the Baptist, his message was, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus came along, and his message was, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the early apostles in Mark 6, 12, they went out and preached that men should repent. And this is what the world needs for the eternal good of their souls. And Luke 24, 46, Jesus said, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, And that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. But with respect to the character of the repentance that is found in the text, uh, most basically, it's the idea of to change one's mind. But but it's more than that. It's it's remorse or grief for one's sin. In second. Corinthians 7.10, for the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. So there's a sorrow or a sadness about some wrong that is done more expansively, is to have a change of self, that is heart and mind, that abandons former dispositions, results in a new self, new behavior, and regret over former behavior and dispositions. So I would especially emphasize that biblical repentance includes not only this mindset of, of grief, but there's also um, A deep desire for changed conduct, to behave and live in a different way. Not that a person is saved by works, but they are clearly saved unto good works, which emanate from the new life in Christ. It's the desire of the heart when the Holy Spirit is working. Uh, Consider these words by Jesus in Luke 11 and verse 32. He says, the men of Nineveh shall stand up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it. And then he says, they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, someone greater than Jonah is here. So Jesus says, they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Well, what does that look like? Well, this is what it looks like. This is from Jonah chapter 3. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God. They called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on ashes. That's grief. And he issued a proclamation and said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them drink, eat or drink water, but both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth. Let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hand. So we see what repentance was here. It's grief over sin and it's a turning from one's wicked way. So the nature of repentance, <clears throat> there, there is a real regret over sin. I'm bothered by my sin. There's a desire for a new kind of obedience and, and a conduct that is a function of the new life that is found in Christ. Excuse me, let me under this first heading just add, add one more thought here. A motive to engage in this kind of repentance. The motive for so doing is to avoid the eternal destruction of the soul. The reason a person wants to repent is to avoid the eternal destruction of the soul. I'm going to read to you five verses from Luke chapter 13. It says no. On the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. He answered and said to them, "Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish." Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who lived in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So Jesus, he cites two examples where many people die at one time. And, and the Roman governor, Pilate, apparently put some people to death who were offering sacrifices the Tower of Siloam was possibly a part of the wall of Jerusalem near the Pool of Siloam. But our, our Lord indicates that the, the right gospel lesson from these incidents, where many people die at one place at one time, is repent or you will all likewise perish. Now that can't mean, repent, perish or can't mean to die physically, because you do that whether, whether you repent or not. Part of the value of, of our Lord using these kind of tragedies, I believe, is that, that when many people die at one time, and it usually includes young people, so it presses upon the soul that the urgency to repent. I I think it's true to say when you're young, you think you have a lot of years left. But the Bible says man knows not his time. Now, just to press this a little bit further, point two and three won't be as long as point one. But just to press this a bit further, turn to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. It helps us to see, well, what does this perishing look like? Suppose that one does not repent and they perish. What does that actually mean? And, And to me, this is just a very clear, sobering picture of what happens to the one who does not repent. Luke 16, beginning in verse 19, There was a certain rich man, he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, gaily living in splendor every day. And a certain poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table beside Even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now it came about that the poor man died. He was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. Verse 23, in Hades, in hell, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment. He saw Abraham far away, Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water, and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you receive your good things, and likewise Lazarus received bad things. But now he's being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you there's a great gulf fixed, in order that those who wish to come over from here to you may not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. So here's a very clear picture of what perishing without Christ looks like. There's this constant agony. There's no possibility of, of release or parole. <clears throat> Excuse me. Goes on in verse 27. He, said, I, he says, I beg you, Father, that you send him. To my father's house, for I have five brothers that he may warn them, lest they come also to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. Now, verse 30 No, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not listen to the Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. So he, here's this rich man. He, he's in this eternally ruinous state. He, he lived a life of opulence in this world, no concern about his soul. But he has five brothers, and, and he's aware the only way to avoid coming here is to repent. He understands that. The only way for them to avoid the same way is to the same fate is to repent. I can't conceive of a weightier motive to repent. This is what perishing looks like for those who don't repent and turn to Christ in this life. So this is something of the kind of repentance that is necessary preparation for baptism. There is a sorrow for sin, and there is a turning to the person of Christ. Now, secondly, what does baptism mean? I mean, what is its significance when a person is publicly baptized? What is that really conveying? I would uh offer three things in this respect number one there's a public affirmation that jesus is my lord it's a public affirmation that christ is my lord i recognize him not simply as lord but my lord so there's an open declaration of one's allegiance to the person of christ the baptism here notice it's in the name of jesus uh, Peterson in his commentary on Acts wrote the, the command to be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus expresses the positive side of repentance involving calling up on him for salvation and, and allegiance to him as Lord and Messiah. Another writes the baptism takes place in the name of Jesus. Christ shows the authority Jesus has at God's side in heaven. So it reveals that the one who's being baptized has believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a persuasion in the soul. There's a recognition of his authority. Secondly, it's a sign that one has been forgiven for his or her sins. Forgiven for his or her sins. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Why? For the forgiveness of your sins. This is really a glorious dimension of the gospel which baptism brings to mind. The term here can mean release from captivity. Um, or pardon cancellation of an obligation it's especially cancellation of the guilt of sin uh, one writes it's a formal release from an obligation or debt especially understood as the debt of sin now i would have you know here that this repentance and forgiveness are they're, they're closely related to one another in acts five thirty one. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. The one follows the other. Now, it's important to realize here that the basis for this forgiveness, um, it's the atoning death of the person of Christ. It's not just God sort of waving a magic wand. It's based on what the person of Christ accomplished on the cross. In Matthew 26, 28, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. In Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. So when a person repents, what what Christ has accomplished on the cross, then it immediately applies to him. All that he accomplished on the cross immediately applies to them the moment they trust in him as their Savior. So the the forgiveness here, it's based upon the, the efficacy, you could say, or the effectiveness of the death of the person of Christ. What he actually accomplished in behalf of sinners. And what's especially brought out is that this, this forgiveness involves a complete cancellation of all the debt and guilt of one's sin. that The slate is wiped completely clean. In Acts 3.19, it says, Repent, therefore, in return, that your sins may be wiped away. That, that is erased or obliterated. It's kind of um, like... Um, on, on a blackboard where uh, it, you know, there's been thousands and thousands of words written on it over the years, but it's, it's cleaned with soap and water, and, and none of, there's no trace of anything. Bach says, thus it means an obliteration that leaves no trace. Kind of the gospel equivalent of this in the Old Testament is I, Isaiah 1:18. Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Third, baptism, it's an identification uh, of union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Identification of union with the person of Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. It's a symbolic, visible representation uh, of participation uh, participation with Christ in these great gospel events. You're probably anticipating these words from Romans chapter 6 and verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection." Uh, These are verses uh, which many commentators believe refers to water baptism. You may be of that persuasion, and so you have to kind of work through that, and that's a very understandable way. Um, I I take it here as referring to um, the baptism of the Spirit into the body of Christ, incorporation into the body of Christ. And my, my main reason for doing so Um, is that water cannot accomplish what these verses cite. Water does not put to death the ruling, reigning power of sin. Water doesn't raise people to new life in Christ. It doesn't do that. It's a religious ritual. It signifies what is going on. But water baptism symbolizes what actually takes place, symbolizes what takes place when a person is converted, that there's union with the person of Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, that there's an actual death to the power of sin by the Holy Spirit. There's an actual raising to new life in Christ by the Holy Spirit. And baptism by immersion beautifully signifies this. It gives it's a marvelous picture of that reality. Well, then thirdly, the proper mode of baptism. So we've talked about the subject of baptism, those who have repented, it's those who have believed, the meaning of baptism, and now the, the mode um how is this biblically sanctioned religious rite properly administered well we believe it's by full immersion in water let me just give you two reasons why that that makes sense at least to me number one kind of picking up on the last point it's the only method that fits the glorious spirituality of actually being united with christ in his death burial and resurrection It corresponds to the spiritual reality symbolized by our participation with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. I think Wayne Grudem says it well. The symbolism of union with Christ in his death, burial, resurrection seems to require baptism by immersion. When the candidate for baptism goes down into the water, it's a picture of going down into the grave and being buried. Coming up out of the water is then a picture of being raised with Christ to walk in newness of life. Baptism thus very clearly pictures death to one's old way of life and rising to a new kind of life in Christ. But baptism by sprinkling or pouring simply misses this symbolism. Secondly, baptism by immersion comports with the clear meaning of the word employed. The lexicon that I use all the time says it means dip or immerse. In non-Christian literature, it was used to plunge, to seek, to sink, to drench, to overwhelm. Just to quote another source, a Bible works program that I use as well, to become momentarily immersed in water as a cleansing ceremonial initiatory rite. Leon Morris commenting on the on the meaning of this verb says the intensive baptize occurs in the sense of to immerse. From the time of Hippocrates and Plato, and especially in later writers, to sink the ship, to sink in mud, to drown, passively to go under, with the same double meaning as in English, to sink into, to be overwhelmed. Now one might ask, well, is there a Greek term that means sprinkle that is applied to baptism? And the answer is yes and no. There is a Greek term that means sprinkle, rentidzo. it occurs four times all in the book of Hebrews. It's never applied to the practice of baptism. So the, these two considerations, at least to my own mind, what baptism symbolizes in the clear meaning of the word are strong arguments and compelling reasons to baptize by full immersion in water. So we're persuaded that, that New Testament baptism is believer's baptism. It's the only, the only proper subject for it are those who have been converted, and the actual practice itself emphasizes one's allegiance to Christ, testifies that there's been forgiveness of sins, symbolizes the spiritual reality of participation with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. We're almost done. Um, one final thought here that uh, that you'll find, I think you'll find this encouraging. I'm just going to read from Acts chapter 8 to make the point what is the result of obeying Christ in baptism? It is joy. It is joy. I'm just reading from Acts chapter 8. An angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. He rose and went, and behold, there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship He was returning and sitting in his chariot. He was reading the prophet Isaiah, and the Spirit said to Philip, Go up and join this chariot. And when Philip had ran up, he heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, Do you understand what you're reading? He said, Well, how could I, unless someone guides me? He invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the passage of Scripture which he was reading, it was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, as a lamb before its shear is silent. So he does not open his mouth. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who shall relate his generation? For his life is removed from the earth. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, Please tell me to whom does the prophet say this, of himself or someone else? And Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. And as they went along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? This is what he desired to do. And Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus is, Christ is the Son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. And they came up out of the water. The Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, but went on his way rejoicing. The effect of being obedient to this command was the rejoicing of soul and heart. Well, let us pray, shall we? Father, we thank you for your, your goodness to us. Pray that you might be pleased to apply to our souls what we have considered this morning. Give us understanding in these things. We, we thank you above all for the, the power and the glory of the gospel that you take those who are lost and dead and, and trespasses and sins and you raise them up to new life in Christ. And so I just, I pray that you would take what we have considered today and, and might it be not only pleasing to thee, but edifying and helpful to our own hearts. And I, I pray it would be a precious preparation now for the the baptisms that we will engage in and what we will see. So we pray that you would continue to, to guide us and direct us and encourage us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.